Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous community from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Dakota Haska. Dakota is a citizen of the Oglala Lakota Nation. She joined the Denver Art Museum in 2019 as the Assistant Curator of Native Arts. Previously, she worked as a curatorial research assistant at the Minneapolis Institute of Art for four years, and during that time, Dakota completed her MA in Art History, focusing on Native American art history at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. She also completed two years of Dakota language classes at the University of Minnesota and received her BFA in Drawing and Painting from the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. Dakota's curatorial work allows her to pursue her passions of working closely with Native communities while being continually surrounded by and learning about beautiful artwork. One program note before we get going here. Uh, this conversation took place in a public office space. And so during the course of this conversation, you're going to hear uh, voices in the background, conversations happening. That's perfectly all right. We've done conversations in public before, but just wanted to let you know so you didn't think you had bad interference on your radio, on uh, your your phone, your laptop, or in your headphones. Uh, there are just other people in the room. And uh, yeah, just so you're aware. So with that being said, let's jump into this conversation with Dakota. Dakota, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plains Questions. It's really great to have you here. It's such an honor. Thank you. Thanks for thinking of me. I, I was really flattered, you know, that you considered me for this podcast. So thank you for that. Oh, yes, uh, of course. Uh, would you be able to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us about your background, where you're from, and what you're what you currently do. Okay. Hello, my relatives. I shake all of your hands with a good heart, although virtually, that's not too literal on this podcast. Uh, my name is Dakota. Uh, I'm a Lakota woman, and I'm enrolled in the Pine Ridge Reservation. And um, I am the assistant curator of Native Art at the Denver Art Museum. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about your your biggest influences, uh, both growing up, currently, today? You know, I... I have had a lot of influences, obviously, but there's a couple of people who, a couple of people slash things that kind of, you know, pointed me into curating, like becoming a Native American curator. And so I'm going to focus on more recent influences, but I would say um, the first person who was really big influence on me and who I feel like I really kind of owe my life as it is now to her. And that was Sandy Whitehawk or is Sandy Whitehawk. And she is, um, she handles uh, an adoption group for people. So I was adopted out in infancy and always felt, you know, I always felt there was more to my story. And when I was about 17, I discovered that I was indigenous. I'm very light skinned. I don't know. Is this podcast, are we seeing, are they seeing me or just hearing? This is broadcast, not audio only. Yeah. 
So, uh, so I'm a pretty light skinned native and um, my parents never told me I was native American. Um, but there was this, when I went to college, there was this old guy and he came up and he was, you know, asking me for some money. Maybe he's the biggest influence on me actually. Um, because so I was from a very small town, as you know, uh, Langford, South Dakota, it has about, well, now I think it's about down to 250 people. I think it was 350 when I lived there. But so like I was in school the first time in Sioux Falls, which is the the big city to me. And when he was asking me for change, you know, I was completely panicked, you know, like, oh, you know, scared. Um, And I said, I don't have any change. It's all upstairs for my laundry. And he said, oh, I'll go upstairs with you and get it. (laughs) And I was like, you know, like young. I mean, I was really young, right, too. Like I was 17 when I started college. I'm like, no, no. And, uh, and he turned to me and he said, your auntie would be ashamed of you right now. And I didn't, I was like, what, what are you talking about? You know, and he, I mean, he was a native man, obviously. And so then I started to think, what? You know, and my adoption agency was right there in Sioux Falls. So I went to them and I said, well, I, uh, I don't want to know uh, who my parents were, but could you tell me what my nationality was and they confirmed that my mother was in fact indigenous and my father was white so then um you know i went you know i'm going to tell you that was like such a relief i'm i mean i felt like the weight of the world lifted off you know because it was really different from my my family i just um the four of them seemed to be the same and then there was me and i was always kind of odd man out and it, everything's just seemed to start making sense to me. But, um, you know, I didn't start really, I don't know, I didn't really start um, living my life in the Lakota way until much later. I, uh, I always consider my journey back to my family and community as like um, running into the ocean, right? Like you dip your toes in the ocean and it's kind of cold and you're not too sure and you kind of run back and then there's another wave and you go in, you go in a little bit deeper. And, you know, it, so it was, it really was this back and forth until I met Sandy Whitehawk. And, um, you know, cause I kind of also didn't know where to start, you know, because at the time when I got my adoption records, I actually didn't have, um, I had all the people's names, but I couldn't find them. And, um, Finally, you know, everything kind of came together and, you know, I was like, oh, you know, I don't know. You know, I didn't grow up on the res. And I, she said, damn it, Dakota, claim your heritage. And that freed something for me. It made me feel like, yeah, I can go home. And I did. And I finally found all my family and um, got enrolled in my reservation and, so that's why probably the guy on the street in Sioux Falls and Sandy Whitehawk were really two of my, you know, they really changed the trajectory of my life. And for the better, I think um, before I, I found uh, my family and stuff, you know, I, I had a lot of motivation, but it wasn't grounded in anything. And again, that just really helped all the pieces kind of fit into place for me and gave me a sense of, um, I don't want to say belonging because it it wasn't that I didn't 
you know, I had a lot of friends and stuff that it just kind of gave, it just kind of grounded my own things. It made everything meaningful for me in a different way than it had been before. So those are two really big influences. Um, and then I had a teacher when I was at MCAD, you know, I was telling you they don't really teach Native American art history and regular art history classes, but MCAD did offer a class, a rotating class on Native American art history. And so I had saved three credits and now it was like my senior year and I was coming up on my last semester of my senior year and that class hadn't come up on rotation and I had been holding those credits for that class. And then the schedule came out and it wasn't gonna come up in rotation. So uh, I went to the, the head of the, um, uh, I don't know what that department, it wasn't in the art department, it was more in like the liberal arts, uh, I guess that is what it was called, like the head of the liberal arts, the chair of the liberal arts department and the, the gentleman's name was Tom Hawkinson. And I asked if I could take that as a uh, independent study. And he allowed me to do that. And that's where I met one of my best friends. And I actually call her my auntie and her name is Ruth Voigts. And she was the teacher there at MCAD. And, you know, we became very close. So she has been another huge influence on my life. So I guess, you know, from an indigenous standpoint that way. And then of course there are artists and scholars and poets, you know, and my mother and, you know, people, that, my adoptive mother, she and I are really close. So there's there's been a lot of support through this journey, but uh, those are probably three I'd call out. You know, with Sandy Whitehawk, um, I'm in such awe of her, of the, community work that she's done and her support for veterans. Um, a veteran myself, uh, I've, I've heard her name in conversations and there was a video, um, I think a PBS production that was done on her a few years back. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm so happy that you have a personal connection to her and you've, you've had time to, to uh, be around her and have her influence your life the way it has. Yeah. I mean, I really, have a very soft spot in my heart for her because I don't know, she, uh, I, I feel like I was lost and her words really kind of put me on a good path. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, well, can you talk about how you've developed your career in both college and post-college? I know you've kind of touched on college a little bit, but, um, yeah, if you could talk about that, please. Yeah, let's see. Um, I, um, I'm kind of trying to decide where to start for the listeners. You know, I don't want to go too far back, but um, I guess I have mentioned earlier that, well, and I, you know, starting this off, I had, I'm on a, a little bit older, right? So I went back to get my fine arts degree uh, in 2010. I had been kind of working on it part-time on and off um, when I could afford classes but in 2010, I quit um, my second long-term career, which was in marketing, and went back to get my fine arts degree. I graduated from the Minneapolis College of Art and Design in 2012. And that's, you know, where I met Ruth Voigts and stuff. And then um, I, so right after I graduated, I went to work at All My Relations as like a gallery assistant 
um, and I worked with Diani Whitehawk, Sandy's daughter, who I didn't really know, you know, very well until then. It's kind of funny. I'm closer with her mom than with the artist, but um, uh, it's kind of funny that that worked out like that. But, you know, I worked with her for a while, and then um, I, they were kind of financially struggling, and so I got laid off. And then I, I don't re- exactly remember the order, but I was taking some Lakota language classes, and I'm Lakota, but, you know, I talked to the professors. I'm like, I'm Lakota, but I would like to learn my language. And they said, well, it's kind of like learning you know, Canadian English and British English and American English, right? There's some structures are very similar and there'll be a few words that are different. So, so I was doing that. And at some point um, I got asked to teach at Nawai Center School, which is in Minneapolis. So I was teaching beginning art and beginning Dakota. And then, um, and then I got asked by a professor at MCTC to teach beginning Dakota there. And then it's kind of like little stepping stones. There's a lot more, you know, when you hear these stories, it sounds so linear, but you know, when you're actually living it, there's a lot more going on than these few details that I'm picking out. But then, uh, then after I had taught there the first semester, the, uh, the instructor said, she was thinking about retiring and would I like to teach Native American art history there? Um, you know, but as we have touched on, I really hadn't learned a lot of Native American art history. I mean, what I had going for me is that I was Native and that was, you know, I had a lot, I knew a lot more about Van Gogh than, you know, about Kent Monkman, for instance. So um, anyway, uh, about that time, this uh, fellowship came up at the uh, Minneapolis Institute of Art and it was sponsored by the Shakopee Midwakanton. And it was so that somebody could come in and really shadow the curator there, which was Jill Albert Yo, and still is. And so I, I took that, um, uh, I, I applied for it and I was lucky enough to get it. Um, and then uh, I was supposed to be there like six weeks, and then they were just starting the planning for the Hearts of Our People exhibition, which I don't know if you've, you know, heard about that or interviewed anybody about that. But oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so they were um, just starting, and they needed help, and so then I was actually able to stay on, and I stayed there for four for four years. But at the very beginning, I could tell pretty early on uh, that. It, you know, this curation, Native, you know, being a Native American arts curator, everything that was important to me really seemed to fall in place, right? I could incorporate language, especially in Minneapolis, right? It was pretty easy to incorporate, like, the Dakota language. Um, I was out in the community a lot, which is something else that I really love. And, um, you know, I loved to be around Native American art and then all the art in the museum. And um, yeah, it was just, it just was like perf- kind of a perfect fit. So then I, I worked to find a program and um, so many of the programs I had to travel, but I eventually through Jill Albert, got connected with the University of St. Thomas. And then um, I was able to talk to them about what my goals were and they kind of helped me align the pro- their program so that I would get, you know, I could do their program, but actually uh, 
whatever the topic was, I could study something related to it, but that was related to Native American art. And so that's kind of how I um, really started going along. And then, I, I mean, when I graduated, I graduated, you know, I presented my master's thesis, the show opened, and two weeks later I moved to Denver. So, yeah, it's a big but a big transition year. That's a yeah, very big and very, very quick turnaround as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, and actually I got divorced in there too. So there was a lot going on. Mm. So how, how do you seek opportunities or how have opportunities presented themselves to you? You know, there is one precept that I live by and that is okay, like if you have, if you're feeling like you need to do something, you're not exactly sure what, I always say just do something, um, even if it's not your lifelong goal, because as you're moving in that direction, what you're really supposed to do finds you. And so I guess that um, when, I don't, I don't know that I was necessarily looking to be a curator of Native art, but I was really just trying to survive because I was going through this divorce and I was had to figure out, you know, okay, now I'm going to be a single mom and, you know, how am I going to pay these bills? So I'll, I'll teach these art classes. I'll teach this art history class. And, you know, doing that and on the way, you know, then the curation um, opportunity presented itself. But it was really just, I mean, I think it's a matter of, you know, what it's Pablo Picasso, I think he's he is uh, credited with this line. And this is actually what I uh, try to live by. And that is um, opportunity knocks, but it has to find you working. And so, um, you know, I feel like it's just important to, you know, keep moving forward and things kind of fall into place. That's how I think of it. But I really like that quote. I have to admit, yeah. I've heard that quote before. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Pablo Picasso, but that's I, I really kind of try to live by that. I think that's great. Yeah. Um, it puts ownership on the individual, you know, not to sit and wait around. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Uh, so what would you want to say to the 18 or 22-year-old that's listening to this conversation? Wow, there's a lot to say, right? That's such a such a really fragile, vulnerable age for all of us. It's a big transition period. And actually, I have a son right now. I have one who's 18 and one who's 20. And they're right in the throes of this. And I guess what I usually tell them is nothing lasts forever. I mean, at that age, you're trying to make these very big life decisions and you feel like your whole future, your whole, the whole success of your future um, relies on, you know, which college you pick and which career you choose. And you're trying to, at that age, really, you know, foresee 10 and 20 and 30 years down the road in your life. And that's really not how life goes. I mean, it's, um, I, I think looking back at my life, I would say, you know, nothing is forever. You can make a choice now and you can change your mind later. And that doesn't mean you're a 
a loser or a failure or that you made a mistake. That is really the nature of life. So, you know, you're making your choice right now with the just the, the knowledge you have available to you at this moment. And six months from now, you might have very different knowledge available to you and you might change your mind and that does not mean you have failed it just it just means you changed your mind i think that's great yeah i mean i had a lot of pressure on myself and when i look back i think oh i I would have enjoyed my life a lot um a lot better if i wouldn't have been so hard on myself and thinking like i have to succeed you know and just be the best at everything Mm I guess, um, that what else would I say? Oh, this is kind of personal, but it is kind of, you know, it's funny and it's not funny, but, you know, I spent a lot of my 20s feeling really blue and just always kind of blaming it on, oh, you know, I I hope this isn't too uh, uh, insulting, but like I have my period or, you know, it's I'm, I have that sad, you know, seasonal affective dis- disorder or... You know, there's, you know, I really had, um, I was really struggling emotionally. And, it, you know, it wasn't until my 30s because, you know, I didn't want to be considered like a wimp or somebody that couldn't handle it. And I, I'm, I'm a health nut, so I wanted to, you know, always be, uh, just try and take care of everything naturally. And it wasn't until my 30s, actually even my late 30s, like I had even already had my kids and finally, my doctor put me on some antidepressants, and it changed my life. And I thought, I wish I would have had these in my twenties because I would have liked, I would have enjoyed myself a lot more. I was so, such a nervous wreck, and just trying to achieve so much. And you know, so I guess the other thing I would say is like, if you're really struggling reach out and do something about it. Talk to somebody about it because, you know, you don't want to be like me and, and have wasted like the, the, I was like the best years of my life. Right. I was like the most beautiful and I was traveling around the world. I was doing all these and I didn't enjoy one minute of it because I was a nervous wreck. And so that would be my other advice. I, I, I fully agree. I think um, it's so important that we take care of ourselves and recognize the value in ourselves, you know, and not put this this unneeded undue pressure on ourselves. Um, but it's it's so great to hear that and have that vocalized. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I would have done that earlier. Hmm. Uh, a question that's sort of popped up in my head as we're talking here. Um, you know, you you were uh, pursuing an art degree. Uh, what is your medium that you work in when you Painting mostly, although I really, really like um, doing monoprints. So printmaking, but not really with the press. Monoprint is um, a very painterly technique. And I often will uh, create a monoprint and then go back in uh, by hand and uh, work over it with, um, you know, oil crayons or chalks or, or something, pastels. Because, and that was a technique that Degas used a lot. It's something I think is really beautiful. Um, But right now, I mean, I moved to Denver, like I got here like the middle of July that I really settled here. We took a couple weeks off and saw relatives and stuff on our travels here. But since then, I haven't been able to make anything because, well, my job is very busy. Um, You know, in the first year I was settling into a new house and getting my son settled into school and 
you know, starting a new job and, you know, I just haven't had the chance. Well, now I have a studio space, but I've got, I'm, I've got three extra people living with me right now. So that studio space got absorbed. And so, you know, but that's what I'd like to get back to is painting and doing monoprints. I can completely relate, um, you know, as an administrator myself. Um, I'm, so I'm a storyboard artist, so you can see the screen here. Um, and uh, this screen is mostly off nowadays just because, you know, um, uh, curating and, and being a program uh, manager um, kind of takes you one away from the work that they want to be doing. So yeah. I, I can appreciate that pain. <laughs> yeah, and, and it is painful, but, you know, I will say that this is just an observation of myself. It seems like the more important something is for me, the more anxiety provoking it is for me too. And painting what painting and printmaking, they were very important to me. And it's not that my um, curatorial job isn't important. It's actually very important to me, but you know, that, and maybe this is something I'm still working through, but um, I, I don't have the anxiety when I'm curating like I did when I was working on my art career. And I think one, it just meant so much to me. And, and two, you know, I have to work through my, the own, my own myths that I tell myself about art making, you know, like, you know, I'm really fighting against this idea of artistic genius and be more in the process, but I would just get so discouraged with myself if it wasn't great right away. And, um, we're here, you know, okay, you don't write a great essay, but there's people here, they help you edit it and they, you know, you, you can just keep working on it. And I just don't, I just don't feel as vulnerable here as I did as painting. I felt so exposed mm -hmm. uh, as an artist. Yeah. The, the collaborative process, uh, working in, in the field. And then there's also such value in being able to promote and support other artists and give them a platform, uh, to be able to exhibit and to tell their own stories through their work. Yeah, right. Everybody's got their own um, set of, you know, skill set and their own ways that they can help in the world. And I feel like, you know, one way I help is just by making elbow room, you know, here at the museum for Native people to, like, get in here. And, I mean, I think I consider that a very important uh, aspect of my job and um, you know letting them have, the, have their voice and their stage and hearing our stories uh, from new perspectives not European based perspectives is great I wholeheartedly agree with you I feel that at the museum that I'm at too <laughs> so yep. yeah yeah I mean your museum is great for that um, I appreciate they do a lot for native artists there too I feel like I mean I've been I've seen some of the good exhibitions that you've done there and yeah. Oh well, thank you, thank you. Well, Dakota, thank you so much for your time. This was a lot of fun, and it was really great to be able to sit down and, and talk with you. Well, it's, it's always my pleasure, and yeah, I like to I like to think about these things, and you know, I like to think. You know, I hope something that I said helps somebody. That'd be good. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Dakota again for her time and sharing her story with us. I always enjoy speaking with other curators uh, who are doing uh, such good work, uplifting, promoting other 
indigenous artists in the spaces that we're in, especially going from Minneapolis to Denver, uh, such important centers of Native American art in this country. Um, I applaud her for the work that she does and for being a good community member. Uh, she's reflective of really all that's right that's going on in our communities. So Dakota, thank you for this conversation and connecting. And I look forward to the next time that we are able to connect. I really look forward to that. I also want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please join us next time as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me at Canna, that's C-A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, across social media, and at the plainsart.org website. There you'll see our programming, past videos, and these podcasts. If you have someone to suggest, uh, please uh, connect with me on social media, uh, message me, and I would like to hear from you. So please take care and we will see you next time. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.